Okay, so I am live with Stephen Batchelor, uh, author of many books, two of his most recent ones, After Buddhism and Secular Buddhism. Uh, we'll be discussing this one a little bit in this interview. Um, but I want to I wanna give a quick introduction to Stephen. Um, it, it's, it's always interesting to have, uh, well, I guess this has never happened to me before, but to have the opportunity to speak with someone who's been so influential in your, you know, in my own journey, uh, seems to be like quite an honor. So I'm, I'm very grateful to you, Stephen, for joining me today, for taking time out of your day um, to have a discussion on secular Buddhism. Um, by way of introduction, I, I want to make sure I get this right, but um, in a nutshell, so Stephen was at one time a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but after uh, you, you studied for some time as a Zen Buddhist monk, is that right? And then ultimately transitioned into, um, you know, leaving the monastic life and just teaching uh, Buddhism from a much more secular standpoint. I'm sure there's a lot more to that uh, in the, in, by way of introduction. Is there anything you would want to add to that, Stephen? No, that's pretty good. Um, I guess the only thing I might add is that I'm also very interested, uh, since I left the monastic uh, communities, uh, my interest has really gone to what I call early Buddhism, uh, to try to sort of get back to what, it, what the Buddha was doing before it became Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's closely tied into what I understand as secular Buddhism. Uh, they're very, very closely connected, these two interests. Great. And I think that's a really fascinating process to try to help us get back to understanding what, um, you know, what was taking place in terms of, of, of the teachings that are really powerful teachings. And I think uh, with most traditions, uh, especially religious traditions, you have what at one point was teachings and it evolves into the teachings about the teachings. And it's like, mm -hmm. um, and I feel like Buddhism is not an exception to that. And sometimes it's in that process of, of the teachings of the teachings that we can get hung up on things that impede us from benefiting from the original teachings. And no, uh, so in uh, just quickly with, with my journey, um, I transitioned out of a, an orthodox uh, form of Christianity and for a while was not interested in, in any form of uh, religion, but came across, um, you know, you, you see quotes online and, and you hear all these little snippets of wisdom that come from attributed to the Buddha or Thich Nhat Hanh or the Dalai Lama. And I thought, man, there's something to this Buddhism stuff. I want to learn more about it. Um, all the while with a, a hint of reservation that I don't want to be entangled in any kind of dogmatic or metaphysical or supernatural beliefs. Um, and that's when I come across uh, Buddhism without beliefs. And it was, it was such a fascinating presentation of, of the teachings, just very simple. It's like, these are the teachings that no beliefs attached to them. And it was extremely influential for me to decide, okay, this is a philosophy I want to study and learn and understand. And then with time, that has evolved into uh, teaching 
and having a podcast. And, and what I'm finding is there, there's a really large community of people who I think we've kind of got two angles, right? From the, from the Buddhist side, there are people who are wanting a more secular approach, but also from, um, from the secular side, people who are disaffected from religion are looking for some form of spirituality that isn't, uh, I guess with quotes there with spirituality, right? But some form of, of path that feels satisfying and fulfilling, but doesn't feel religious. And they're encountering Buddhism as a philosophy. And this movement is just taking off, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and, and you're at the forefront of it and, and you're, you've been extremely influential with it. Um, and that's uh, part of why I wanted to spend time and talk to you a little bit about it because it's really exciting. It's a really exciting time. And, and I thought it would be really fun to pick your brain. And, um, uh, so again, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Nella. I think you summarized that extremely well. I mean, that's exactly how I feel. I think we're at the intersection of two powerful cultural streams, people who are disaffected with religion on the one hand and people who are disaffected with secularism on the other. Mm-hmm. And Buddhism, of course, is famously thinks of itself as a middle way. Well, maybe that's the way that middle way is playing out in our time uh, in the world today. And if we can contribute to this and sort of address concerns that are uppermost in the minds of these two um, bodies of people, then I think we may do a great service. And I'm very honored to be part of that. Well, great. Um, Well, so with that in mind, let's let's jump into a couple of the topics that I want to discuss Mm -hmm. Uh, because uh, something that you mentioned in your most recent book in secular Buddhism. Um, well, I, I guess before we jump into that real quick, I, I do want to kind of highlight from my understanding, um, Buddhism without beliefs, I think does a really good job of, of being like a foundational text to understand Buddhist concepts mm-hmm. um, with the understanding of Buddhist concepts then comes, um, you know, uh, for me reading it backwards was, was, Buddhism without beliefs, then uh, I wanted to know your story. Confession of a Buddhist atheist was uh, kind of like your biography or your, your, your transition or your story. Um, then comes, um, and I know you have a lot more than these four books I mentioned, but after Buddhism kind of presents, you know, what's next? Like, what do we do with this now? Um, which I enjoyed and I know a lot of podcast listeners have enjoyed. So I, I always recommend Buddhism Without Beliefs as a foundational text to podcast listeners or people who want to uh, understand uh, secular Buddhism. Um, but then comes your most recent book, um, Secular Buddhism, Imagining the Dharma in an Uncertain World. And something I really enjoyed from this process was seeing and you discuss this in the book, but kind of the evolution of your understanding of some of these key concepts, specifically mm-hmm. the Four Noble Truths and the transition mm-hmm. of the Four Noble Truths from being truths to being tasks. So talk to me a little bit about that process uh, of that understanding and that transition, because I think it's a, it's a powerful shift in perspective to see it that way. Um, yeah, again, I think you, you summarized that very well. Um, as the author of books, it's very difficult to have 
um, a perspective in which I can look at them from the outside, as it were. And I see my books really as, uh, in a way, the way in which I share my journey with others. And um, I see each book as a kind of a, a way station on a journey that is far from over. And it does uh, clearly describe a trajectory. And you're quite right, probably the key idea in all of my work over the last 40 years has been in the rethinking of the doctrine of the Four Noble Truths. Uh, the Four Noble Truths is quite self-evidently uh, the foundational teaching of what we think of as traditional Buddhism. Uh, there's no Buddhist school that would somehow sideline this. Um, it's clearly the kind of the paradigm or the template out of which traditional Buddhism has been uh, based and developed. I first um, started having questions about this um, while I was still a Tibetan Buddhist monk. This would have been 30 odd years ago. And I remember we were studying a fairly obscure Tibetan text on philosophy, I think it was. And uh, there I came across this idea of these four tasks. Um, uh, it didn't, they didn't describe them as tasks as such, but it made it very clear that the person who realizes these four truths has effectively done four things. They have embraced or fully understood dukkha or suffering. They've let go of certain reactive patterns or graspings. They experienced the stopping of those patterns and they have cultivated and developed a way of life in the world. And um, that was in a Tibetan text. It was not that the Tibetans were actually teaching that as their main thing, but there it was. And for some reason, that really jumped off the page for me. It, it is, I've not heard this before. I never heard it again in the Tibetan tradition or, or other traditions, really. And yet it's there. And as I found out later, it's right at the conclusion of the Buddha's first discourse or what's considered to be the Buddha's first discourse. So clearly this idea that the four truths are to be enacted uh, in a way that actually has a transformative effect on one's life um, was there from the very beginning, from the very outset. And I've always found it very strange that something that is presented as the conclusion of the Buddha's first discourse is never further developed. In any of the orthodox traditions, you'll find little, if anything, on these four tasks, as I now call them. Mm -hmm. Over time, um, I became more and more um, dubious about some of the metaphysical claims of Buddhism. And I soon began to realize that it wasn't just karma and rebirth that were metaphysical doctrines, but actually the Four Noble Truths were metaphysical doctrines. Uh, to claim that you know, life is suffering, that's a metaphysical claim. You're making a generalized statement about the nature of existence, wherever it might occur in the universe, and it is dukkha. Uh, that the origin of dukkha or suffering is craving, that's a metaphysical claim. It's no different really from saying that God created heaven and earth. It's not something you can prove, it's not something you can disprove. It stands outside the reach of reason. So when I started thinking, the, the Four Noble Truths were actually metaphysics, that again brought me back to another way that the Buddha had presented these truths, not in fact as things to believe, as metaphysical doctrines, 
but actually as indicators of how to live. In other words, he, he, I, my, I, I feel quite passionately actually that the Dharma started out as a pragmatic, uh, therapeutic um, way of life, uh, primarily concerned with ethics, ethics in the wider sense of how do we become the kind of people we aspire to be? How do we lead a good life? How do we flourish as human persons and human societies here on earth? These are ethical questions. And my sense is that the Buddha was an ethicist through and through. Ethics is not just part of the path. The path is ethical in its very nature. The whole of the Eightfold Path is really a way of life. It's an, e it's an ethos. It's an ethic. And so the next step in this process was when I was reading the letters of a British monk called Nyanavira Tera, Harold Musson, who was a bhikkhu in Sri Lanka during the 1950s. And I came across his collected letters really by chance. They were in a bookshelf in a retreat center I was teaching at. And I was completely taken with this man's ideas. And he was the one who actually coined the word, the, the four tasks. Uh, he presented the Four Noble Truths as what he calls the optimal, what is it, the optimal task for a human person's performance or something like that. Uh, and that really nailed that point to me in a very final way. And that became the basis for my own working out of these uh, truths as tasks in a much more uh, detailed way than uh, Nyanavira ever got down to doing. And it provided for me a whole other template, a whole other paradigm in which we can practice the Dharma that you can't consider to be something that's been invented in the 20th century and dreamed up by some later commentary or tradition. It's actually something you find at the very root the very core of the Dharma itself. So this secular approach to the Dharma is, for me, a radical way of reforming uh, Buddhism, um, much in the way that uh, Luther and Calvin and others sought to reform uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think we are at a time where Buddhism, if it is to really survive as a force for for, for, for good, a force for wisdom, for compassion in our world, it has to rethink its uh, fundamental ideas in a very radical way. And um, this, maybe foolhardy as it is, is what I'm trying to do. Hmm. Well, I love that. And, and, and I love what you mentioned in your book, how as um, a living tradition, uh, you're in, you're you're more interested in the ongoing dialogue and not arriving at a final conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, uh, as someone who studies and practices Buddhism, I, I would agree wholeheartedly that you know understanding the nature of things being impermanent, the the nature of of things continually changing. That's the only logical way that any of this would make sense. Is that this would be an ongoing transformation. Mm -hmm and an ongoing evolution um, that should be approached and discussed in this way. At least that's how I view it mm -hmm. from my perspective. And I understand that, you know, from some other perspectives, this may be threatening. This may seem scary. 
because it's a change of, of, of how things have been. Um, mm -hmm. And that's always scary. You, we encounter that in any, any school of thought, any religion, any ideology. Um, I want to address something that you mentioned in the book that I really like. You discuss this idea of thinking of Buddhism 1.0 uh, as kind mm -hmm. of the traditional Buddhism and um, secular Buddhism is kind of a reboot or Buddhism 2.0, mm -hmm. as you call it. Now, what stood out to me when I first heard this, the idea of software being um, updated, any software that we use that's useful will be updated periodically. That's, that's the nature of, of, of how good software works. Um, but what stood out to me was this thought that um, as an operating system, it, it's one thing to claim this is the right operating system. And it's another to say, this is another operating system. And, and it may be contingent on, on the hardware, right? I, I like to think of the hardware as the culmination of my personality, our um, societal way of thinking. You know, all of that hardware may lend itself to say, hey, this operating system may be more effective for this hardware. Um, yeah. But it's not necessarily saying this operating system is better than that operating system. Right. And, you know, I think about this all the time with the, with the ongoing debate that I have with um, or that I hear with friends because uh, I'm in the tech world. Um, you know, is, is a Mac better than a PC? Uh, well, there are so many arguments that prove that, that this one is better than that one. But there are also arguments that prove that that one is better than this one. So in a way, it's like, well, the answer is yes, it is better. Mm -hmm. and, and the answer is also no, it's not better. Um, and I like applying that to this concept of uh, mm -hmm. secular Buddhism as a, an operating system. It's just, I feel like what, what we're doing as we present secular Buddhism is we're saying, hey, here's another way to think about it, but it's not mm -hmm. in competition to it. And you address that specifically in your book when you said, um, uh, you mentioned that the mythical and the historical being both valid and they don't necessarily compete. So talk to me a little bit about that. Um, what role does the mythic play in, in Buddhism in general? Um, and does it play any role in, in, in this new operating system? <laughs> uh, yeah, it does. I, I mean, the, 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 the danger with a secular approach is that you might read some story about the Buddha like, for example, he grows up as a prince and he leaves the palace and he sees the sick person and the old person. It's a beautiful mythical story, but it's, there's no, it's very unlikely anything like that actually happened. And the danger is that we would then say, well, we, that is no longer relevant. Mm -hmm. What we're doing there is we're mistaking, uh, we're making a category error, basically. We're taking a myth as though it, we're judging it as though it were historical and because it doesn't live up to our standards of historical truth we thereby discard it. Mm -hmm. uh, the traditional Buddhists have done the opposite. They've taken, um, uh, no, no I'm sorry I'm getting muddled here. Uh, the point is that um, myth works very well in its own terms and it needs, though, to be constantly uh, uh, reminded. Uh, we need to be constantly reminded that it's not history. It's doing something else. And one of the most powerful myths for me in one of my books that you didn't mention, uh, called Living with the Devil, after I wrote Buddhism Without Beliefs, 
Um, I was basically given a blank check by my publisher and uh, they said, okay, just do what you want. And it sounds like a writer's sort of greatest dream come true. Actually, it's a nightmare because you have no guidance whatsoever. You have no points of reference. You have no task to perform. You're just told to do what you want. And I spent a lot of time uh, trying to figure out what in fact I wanted to say. At the end of it, after a number of false starts, I stumbled into the idea of Mara, the demonic. Mm -hmm. Now, this is purely mythical material. It's right through the early Pali Canon, the encounters of the Buddha and Mara. And of course, it's also picked up in many other traditions as well, not exclusively Buddhist, obviously. As the figure of Satan has a very similar role. Now, I found that um, the, using the Mara material, uh, the idea of the demonic as a, as a personification, as a kind of a, 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 character, a character who interacts with another character, who embodies certain um, uh, values and perspectives and so on that are in opposition to others, works in many ways more powerfully for me than analyzing uh, these things in terms of, say, Buddhist psychology. The Buddhist psychology is, again, trying, it's, it's quite an amazing thing that Buddhists came up with psychological insights long before they were thought of in the West. And we're naturally quite attracted to that sort of aspect of Buddhism. Much of the world of mindfulness draws upon Buddhist psychology, really. And that's the language it tends to prefer. But that's done at the cost of losing sight of the potency of mythic material. Um, the example of Mara I, I, I continue to use today. In fact, next month in New York, uh, there will be a performance of an opera that I've written uh, called Mara. Um, I've, been spent, I've spent a few years now writing a libretto. Uh, which tells the story of Buddha and Mara through two acts that are sung by a, a soprano, a baritone, and a tenor. The music has been composed by my friend Sherry Woods, and we're going to have a performance in uh, the Rubin Museum, October 18 and 20 in New York City, if you're interested. Tickets wow. are available. Yeah, I can check that out. <laughs> uh, that so that's a, another example of, uh, of using a secular form, opera, mm. um, converting Buddha, classical Buddhist material into the language of the Western musical tradition and presenting these ideas, not intellectually or abstractly, but through figures moving and singing and acting on stage. Um, uh, this is, again, I think uh, you couldn't do this with thinking of Buddhism purely psychologically or philosophically. So that, to me, probably the best example of how we would be very careful not to dispense with mythology because it doesn't meet our criterion of historical or psychological accuracy. It allows us to engage with this material through the imagination. Mm -hmm. And that, for me, is, again, a very, very important part of my practice. It's the cultivation and the inter and the incorporation of the creative and the imaginative into my practice and in fact in the book secular buddhism the last section is all about the arts which i feel is, is hopefully a way in which the secular movement within buddhism uh, will start to take more and more interest in finding new forms of um, 
of, of expressing the Dharma and bringing it into our lives in, in quite non-traditional ways. Cool. I love that. Um, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. Um, so from my perspective, I kind of see it like the secular Buddhist movement that's emerging. I don't want it. I wouldn't want it to replace the traditional Buddhist movement or, or anything else. I kind of view it like, um, you know, the concept of, of love languages, uh, the idea that some people express something that is so universal like love very differently. For some people, their, their mm -hmm. key love language is words of affirmation. For others, it's um, uh, physical touch or, you know, whatever, whatever their love language is, it works for them. I've, I've come to understand that secular Buddhism for me is like another spiritual language. Mm -hmm. um, it's a language that works for me. That's why I enjoy it. And I, I like teaching these concepts from a secular lens and practicing them in a, from a secular approach. But I've, I, I've never felt like I'm crossing the line to say this is the right way for everyone. Mm -hmm. I, I, I feel like it's important to emphasize that what we're trying to do, I think, in, as part of this movement is to provide another language that may work for some people because the language that's out there isn't working for someone. Um, and that in, involves uh, at times telling people, hey, this tradition works, but uh, you may want to check out the Tibetan tradition or you may want to check out Zen um, because it's not a competition of, hey, you need to be here, right? And um, so I, I'd kind of like to hear your thoughts on that, your perspective on that. I assume okay. from what I've gathered that, that it's similar for you. Yeah, it's very similar. Um, and it actually, this whole distinction taps right into the core um, shift from truths to tasks. Mm -hmm. As long as you're involved, in, you're invested in the language of truth, it's very difficult to not then get into the comparative judgment. Well, if this is true, then that can't be true. Mm -hmm. if, if the Tibetan Buddhist teaching of this is true, then the Zen or the Theravada version clearly can't be true. At the root, then, in, of this secular approach is that it has discarded the, uh, the, the, the polemic of truth and replaced it with the vision of pragmatism. In other words, what matters is not, we're not trying to persuade ourselves or others that this or that idea is true. We're only actually interested in whether or not it works. Mm -hmm. That's the key insight of William James and others in the pragmatic tradition. Um, it doesn't matter whether, it's not about whether it's true, it, does it work? Um, does this practice, for example, of mindfulness actually make a difference in the quality of my life? I don't, um, I'm not going to try and persuade people to do it because the Buddha said it and the Buddha was in line, therefore it's true. Mm -hmm. I'm basically offering a, an exercise and the question is, is this helpful? Does this work? Does this actually improve the quality of your life? And as, if you're really serious about that approach, then of course you will assume an extremely tolerant attitude towards all other forms. But you will acknowledge that for certain people, perhaps this is not an approach that's very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, might even, as you suggest, direct them elsewhere. Maybe you should do a Zen practice or whatever. In other words, you need to adapt the Dharma to suit the needs of the practitioner rather than seeking to uh, remodel the practitioner mm -hmm. to somehow fit 
the right. uh, idea you have as what constitutes the Buddhism. And um, my experience, particularly in the Tibetan tradition, was that um, in order for me to be able to function in good faith as a Tibetan Buddhist monk, I had to accept certain doctrinal propositions as being true and to be able to defend them in public. Uh, and if I were unable to do that, I would have no business being a Tibetan Buddhist monk. Um, and that's one of the reasons I, 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 I could not really work within that environment. Hmm. And there were other issues as well we don't need to go into. But the point is, um, the, the, a secular approach is effectively a tolerant approach. And uh, this has been brought forth uh, quite uh, strongly in recent writings and speeches by the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is also using the word secular a lot. Yeah. Uh, if you've read his book Beyond Religion, yep. which is an unusual title for the head of one of the world's biggest religions, uh -huh. uh, um, the thing he, he, he emphasizes is uh, how we live in a world today where we can no longer expect any one religion to provide the ethical foundations for how people should live in this world. Mm -hmm. That We need a secular approach that um, recognizes the diversity and the plurality of different religious traditions and gives equal respect to them all, and yet provides a space in which um, tolerance is the key. And he gets this idea from his reading of the Indian constitution, a secular constitution set up in 1948, and um, which is explicitly secular in order to in a way, work within the highly diverse religious world of India. When you've got Muslims and Hindus and Jains and lots of different groups and so on, you cannot run a country like that uh, by taking a sectarian uh, stance in terms of your identity as a nation. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, sec the secular vision is not just about putting religion to one side or even rejecting religion, as it's often understood it's actually about having an open and tolerant attitude that is able to accept them all but having said all of this i do think we need to be we also need to leave enough space to have a critical engagement with religious traditions a critical sure. in, in my own case a, you know a, a critical relationship to the buddhist traditions that have emerged Historically, I don't think we can just say, well, this works for you, that's fine, this works for you, that's fine. There's a danger there we slip into a kind of non-critical individualism. Mm -hmm. And I do think we need somehow to find a balance between, on the one hand, tolerance and respect, and on the other hand, a willingness to look clearly and critically on the basis of empirical, ev empirical evidence, historical research, archaeology, and so on, to try to get to a much clearer sense of how these traditions evolved, and to be able to be quite open and frank with our concerns about where they might be, you know, maybe going off in directions that are even contradicting their own principles or whatever it might be. Sure. So there's a balance between criticism and, 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 and respect need to go hand in hand. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and what comes to mind, I think, you know, hey, that tradition that's working for you, it's not working for the rest of us because you're... <laughs> You know, you're trying to kill us or something along those lines um, or, 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 or not even going to that extreme. But, you know, a, a set of beliefs that may be causing uh, unnecessary suffering for a, for a, a whole group, uh, you know, yeah, think exactly. of like the LGBT community or something, something like that. That's right. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm glad you you mentioned that. Um, 
Okay. Uh, a couple of things I want to mention just based on what we've talked about, um, even from uh, writings that talk about, um, you know, the Buddha's ability to teach people where they were, to meet someone where they are and teach them what's appropriate for them. That seems to be echoed in what we're discussing here, what you, what you explained That's about right. this approach. Um, also, the, uh, the idea that we shouldn't take these things just because someone said them or because they're written somewhere, you know, that that's also a, a deep rooted understanding for a lot of people of what Buddhism and what the mm -hmm. Buddha was teaching was, Hey, try this. And that's why I love this transformation into tasks because you can take these and apply them and try them. So I, I wanted to talk about this a little bit because you have an acronym that you use that makes it easier uh, for us to remember this idea of letting go. So the acronym mm -hmm. is, Elsa. Elsa. <laughs> Elsa. Elsa. So as, as we, as any of us with kids know, Elsa teaches us the message of "let it go," right? <laughs> playing, playing off of that, uh, the Disney movie. Um, so walk, walk. Oh, us really? Oh, that's in a Disney. Actually, someone told me that. I yeah. didn't know because I yeah. don't watch. Yes, yeah, somebody. Which is told funny because when I first heard it, I thought, I wonder if he drew that correlation on purpose to help us remember that i just think it's a really funny play yeah. on the acronym and her most famous song she sings is called let it go <laughs> is it really yeah now what, what movie is this now um uh okay just, or something? no 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 it's one of the more recent ones um well never mind but yeah someone did flag that to me and i was very i was yeah. very um so, so the movie's called frozen and the, um, the, uh, right. the main character um, is, her name is Elsa. And her, uh, her pivotal moment in the movie is that she's learning to let go of something that's been binding her, her keeping, holding back who she really is. And, and, and that's her song, Let It Go. So I just think it's really funny. Uh, the, well, you, it's, a, it's a close interconnected world these days and who knows yeah. the script writer might actually borrow the idea <laughs> i have no idea and i don't really mind but um yeah. so so uh, tell me uh, let's let's walk through elsa as an acronym <laughs> and um and and maybe apply it like if someone's listening to this thinking you know how do i apply this as ta as a task to mm -hmm. an ordinary instance of anguish or suffering, right? Like, um, uh, I'm stuck at the red light or I just lost my job or how would we apply these as tasks to an instance of suffering like that? Okay. Um, the example I usually give, um, is actually the, uh, is the, is working as a therapist. Um, but let's first of all, start by just breaking down Elsa so that we're all on the same page here. Elsa is E embrace. L, let go, S, C, some, in some of the earlier writings it said stop, mm -hmm. uh, and then A, actualize or act. And that is a highly condensed uh, secular Buddhist version of the Four Noble Truths. In other words, embrace suffering, which means embrace the situation at hand, mm -hmm. let go of your instinctive reactivity to it, see the stopping of that reactivity and then act, respond 
either say, think, act, do something, whatever it might be. So one, to concretize that, imagine that you're a therapist working with a client. The knock on the door, a person appears. E, embrace. Embrace that person as unconditionally as you can. Accept that person for who they are. Read the face, what they're saying to you through their eyes, through their expressions, through their body language. Be totally open to that. L, let go of the reactions that arise in your mind. Now, if it's a, maybe if you're a, a, a heterosexual male, and it's a beautiful young woman, you'll experience desire. You'll experience saying, hmm, she's nice or whatever. Notice that, be totally with it. Don't condemn it, but let it go. Don't buy into it. Just see that is the natural, completely uh, uh, ordinary response of an, or one organism to another. It's okay. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with reactivity. It's what we do with it that's problematic. Mm -hmm. So the second step is let go of that reactive pattern. Or it might be someone you, a client that you really have a great deal of difficulty with on some personal level, and you experience resistance, dislike, um, frustration. You notice that, you embrace it, you let it go. And that allows you to come to settle into that non-reactive, mindful attention that you're trying to sustain as this person walks into your room. See the fact that when you're aware of these things, that seeing is actually non-reactive. You can be non-reactively aware of your reactivity. Mm -hmm. This is the essential principle behind the whole, all mindfulness therapies, basically. And that's not the end of the path. That's not your nirvana, as it were. Mm -hmm. That is actually where you now seek to respond to the situation. You seek to respond to this person's suffering, in this case, the client. You seek to respond to them in a way that's not determined by your instincts, your reactions, your likes, your dislikes. It's responding in a way that's not conditioned by your greed, your attachment, your fear, your hatred, your egoism or whatever it might be and that is what then leads you to say something to maybe reach out and take their hand whatever it is that you subsequently do now of course in reality this what i've just described could be happening within a second or less it's very fast the reason we do formal practice is to somehow break the process down into manageable training segments so we'll spend time actually cultivating attention that embraces our situation which is largely just being mindful and aware we'll pay more attention to what it means to not get caught up in our reactive patterns we'll learn to know what that feels like and we'll become particularly attuned to the taste and the feel of what it's like to be in a non-reactive state of mind as a foundation for them being able to respond rather than react to the person who's actually before you or the situation that is at hand. And uh, as you suggested at the beginning, we can apply that to any situation in life, uh, whether we're stuck at a traffic jam in a trivial sense or whether we're facing a 
major life decision in a marriage or in a, in a work situation, we can apply those principles, I feel, uh, just as uh, effectively in, 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 uh, in, in any human uh, scenario. Uh, the difficulty is, is that it's happening very fast. The, right. the world is impinging on your uh, life, that you're under deadlines, you've got colleagues and friends and partners pressuring you to do this, that and the other. You don't have the luxury to go on a two-week meditation retreat before you get back to them with the answer. Mm-hmm. So the, the, we need, I think, to find a way in which we can integrate a formal practice in which we, we, we you know, we, we quite systematically cultivate these skills. And then the real practice, which is actually living from moment to moment, from day to day, in the midst of what is often a very conflicted and sometimes very stressful situation. Um, and uh, we can do all of that without believing anything about Buddhist doctrine or metaphysics. It really plays no role at all. It's actually kind of just a big irrelevance. And uh, I used to make the mistake of really getting, you know, getting upset with people who believed in reincarnation and making a big effort to try to you know, show that it can't possibly be true and so forth and so on. But that's just the same problem in reverse. I'm, I'm reacting to a belief rather than being attached to it. Mm-hmm. What I've got to now is that rebirth, reincarnation, karma, different realms of existence, this is all completely irrelevant. It's got nothing actually, it has an actual no bearing whatsoever on how we actually live our lives from day to day. And so we can just let it go. We don't have to get upset about it or whatever. We just, we just don't need to be driven by opinions and right. views. Yeah, I really like that word, irrelevant, because it it's not a matter of um, I've got to prove or disprove. It just it becomes a side note. It's just yeah, it's a side note. It is actually just it just it's just off the map. It's not really. It doesn't play any role at all. Right. Yeah, and that's how I view it. And and and, and I like to think that if I perceive that Buddhism can get in the way of Buddhism, um, <laughs> I need to understand that secular Buddhism also gets in the way of secular Buddhism. The moment yeah. I become dogmatic against dogmatism, yeah. right? Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's why I really like what you discuss with the operating systems. Again, th- mm-hmm. thinking of that as, as the analogy, keeping in mind, Hey, this is just a different, it's, it's a different software. It, 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 it right. works differently and it may, exactly. It, it works well for me, but at the same time, I recognize I, I haven't tried every operating system and I can't, right? There are so mm-hmm. many uh, ways of, of trying to make sense of the universe. Um, and this one happened to work pretty well for me and I'm content here. And I think the moment I realize that I'm not, it's, it's not inspiring me to be a better person or I'm not experiencing um, joy out of it. Then sure, I may say, well, let me try another. Let me try another software here. Mm-hmm. Um, but by keeping that in mind, it allows me to extend that to someone else, saying, if you're good where you are, you're good where you are. As long as it, you know you're happy and you're inspired to to um, to be a better person, and you're not harming other people mm-hmm. in the process, then sure, stick with that software. Um, well, this has been such a treat to discuss things with you. I mean, I feel like I could, I could spend all day chatting. I may have to come to France and visit you, and we could just sit down and 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 chat. 
Um, but I do want to take a few moments to address or to ask you some questions that um, uh, podcast listeners had sent in that they wanted me mm -hmm. to ask you. Is that okay? okay? Yeah, absolutely. Let's go for it. Okay, so we'll take a, a couple of minutes here and just look at this. Um, all right, so one of the questions is, uh, okay, how, how important is, med is meditation practice in secular Buddhism? Um, and if, if so, like what types uh, are best? So talk to me a little bit yeah. about your, your approach with that. Okay, no, that's a very good question. And um, uh, I, I've got a sort of a both-and answer to this one, I'm afraid. Uh, on the one hand, I would quite categorically affirm that meditation practice is pretty useful. It's kind of necessary. I think if we're going to buy into the ELSA model, mm -hmm. this requires that we do cultivate uh, certain inner disciplines that allow us to be more aware of the workings of our minds. Uh, we can't get round that, I don't okay. think. Uh, and meditation, particularly mindfulness meditation, um, is I think a remarkable tool for achieving this. And um, I feel extraordinarily vindicated in having started out practicing mindfulness about 30 years ago to now, now find that it's all over the place. And that the reason it's all over the place is not because the world is becoming Buddhist, it's because it works. It's as mm -hmm. simple as that. Um, you know, clinical trials and so on have just shown there's growing evidence that, you know, if you want to live a, a, a happy, flourishing, creative life, then it would help, in most cases, to be more mindful. Now, the counterpoint to that is that um, we must be careful, I think, as secular Buddhists, not to overprivilege meditation and to think of meditation as the practice. And you get a lot of Buddhists who say, oh, I've got to go do my practice now. And what that usually means is they'll go somewhere quiet and they'll sit cross-legged on a zapper and they'll light a stick of incense and they'll meditate for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. We have to expand the notion of practice to include every aspect of the Eightfold Path. And in that sense, I want to keep meditation on an equal, on a level playing field with with, with vision, with intention, with speech, with action, with work, with effort, and with samadhi, with, with, with concentration. The, the Buddha, uh, in, the early, in the first discourse, quite clearly presents the Eightfold Path as the practice. Mm -hmm. All of those aspects of the path are to be bhavana, to be cultivated, to be brought into being, to be practiced. Mm -hmm. so, the danger today is that we continue this um, idea that the real practices are private subjective meditation that we do on our cushion, we do on, on, on our retreats, and everything else in our life is kind of an optional add-on to mm -hmm. that core practice. Um, I think we really need to honor our whole human experience as a field of practice. In other words, how we think, how we speak, how we work, how we act, all of that is practice. And it's no more or less practice than cultivating meditation. The reason I think meditation becomes so highlighted in Buddhism is because it is a part of the tradition um, that provides uh, something that in the West we've lost sight of. 
we don't, our meditative and contemplative traditions in Christianity in particular have largely fallen into abeyance and Buddhism is thereby very attractive because it provides something we don't have. And so it does fill a gap. And that perhaps is one of the reasons why it's given such priority. Mm-hmm. But the danger is that we don't readjust, as it were, our perspective on practice once we do have a reasonably competent meditation um, uh, discipline under our belt. Uh, we need then to do the next thing, which is to extend the notion of practice to include everything else and to not give unnecessary privilege to meditation. Okay. Yeah, I like that. And and, and I would also add, you know, if if used as a practice um, to to ease the grasping or the attachment we have, um, we need to be careful to not allow it to become the next thing we attach to. Yes. Um, um, And I think sometimes here in the West, it seems like it is used very much as a form of escapism. It's like, well, here's life and it's hectic. So I'm going to go hide in my little corner here and sit for a moment and get away from it all without realizing that the whole part of the practice is to, it's not to get away from it all. It's to sit with it all, to be with things just as they are. Um, So I think. That's true. But on the other hand, there are times in which retreat Absolutely. Back, yeah. Is, is kind of important. I think we often need the the a quiet break. and the solitude mm-hmm. uh, to really take stock of what's going on. And there's a, there's a great place for that in our world, uh, the whole, yeah. especially as we become so much more bombarded with data. Mm-hmm. We do need to create spaces, public spaces in our world, where people can experience a physical quiet and solitude um, to support their. Uh, the rest of, rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that, what you just mentioned, kind of addresses one of the other questions, which is the okay. view on uh, retreats, mindfulness retreats. Um, I think they have a place, certainly. Um, mm-hmm. And based on what you just said, we wouldn't want to make the mistake of thinking, no, those are obsolete, you shouldn't, you don't need that. Mm-hmm. But we also don't want to make the mistake of thinking that's the way, that's the only mm-hmm. way you get that's any benefit right. out of all of this is you've got to go to these things. Um, okay, so another question that just came in: um, Do you view these teach? Do these teachings constitute a religion? <laughs> um, this is a question that I'm, I'm frequently asked, and the, the problem is, the word religion is extremely difficult to define. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think at the beginning of after Buddhism in chapter one, I talk about the different ways in which we can use religion, in some senses positively, in other senses negatively. To me, um, I consider myself at one level to be a deeply religious person. And but by that, I don't mean that because I'm, I bought into some religious orthodoxy of Buddhism or his, Christianity. But to be deeply religious, as I understand it, means to lead your life from uh, in a state of ultimate concern. Uh, if we take our life with the deepest possible seriousness, that we realize that we're only on this earth for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, how do we make the most of that? How do we take, make each moment count? How do we give our passion and our deepest feelings to what matters most for us in the face of our death? That, to me, is the core of, 
of, of the religious feeling, the religious impulse. And I think the traditional religions uh, acknowledge that. But very often uh, what happens is that the more that one gets drawn into an orthodox religion, Buddhist or other, the, the potency of our ultimate concern becomes slowly sort of eaten away and we become more and more preoccupied with defending our beliefs or defending our institutions um, and somehow preserving uh, a sacred teaching or organization or whatever it might be and that's where religion i think starts to become uh, less desirable and then it becomes very often about joining a club uh, feeling superior to other people, having privileged access to the truth, uh, all of that kind of stuff, all of the wars of religion, all of the disputes between the Catholics and the Protestants, the Muslims and the Jews and the Hindus and so on. That's where religion really goes out the window as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so can we therefore somehow recover the core that unites all people who are deeply committed to the values of being human in whatever form that might take and be less um, preoccupied with the outward structures and teachings and doctrines that the particular historical religions have, have come up with. So I'm not giving you a yes or no answer. Yeah, which is, this is very Buddhist. <laughs> I, I like that. I really like that uh, explanation. I, I've thought lately, um, it's interesting that with Buddhism, it, people would ask, are you a Buddhist, right? But mm -hmm. with another practice like yoga, for example, there's not really a word, are you a yogaist? You know, it's just, do you practice it or yes or no? Mm -hmm. um, and I wish we viewed Buddhism more like that. Do I practice meditation? Yes. Do I practice uh, Buddhism? Yes. Am I a Buddhist? Well, no. <laughs> uh, do I teach Buddhism? Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so um, I think that's, that, that's just an interesting thought. Um, okay, so I know we're coming up on the last couple of minutes here. I'd like to ask you um, what, this is my question to you. Okay. Uh, how do you define nirvana? What does nirvana mean to you? The idea of enlightenment, what does it mean to you? Well, to, for a start, I don't, for me, nirvana and enlightenment are not equivalent at all. Okay. Um, nirvana just means they're literally blowing out or mm -hmm. stopping. Mm -hmm. And uh, I go back to one of the earliest phrases in the Pali uh, suttas, the, the, the discourses, where the Buddha says that nirvana is uh, clearly visible, immediate, um, inviting, uplifting, and personally experienced by the wise. Um, he says that about the Dharma. He says that about nirvana. Nirvana is clearly visible. In my understanding, nirvana, therefore, is every moment in which you rest in a non-reactive state of mind. Uh, the classic definition of nirvana, which again we find in the suttas, this is not later commentarial material, the Buddha says nirvana is the stopping of greed, the stopping of hatred, the stopping of delusion. Now that's usually taken to mean the complete and final stopping of all those things. Mm -hmm. um, I don't read it that way. I read it that every moment in your experience as a human being, you find yourself in a 
still, quiet, open, responsive frame of mind, you are tasting nirvana. You're tasting a mind that is not governed by your attachments, your fears, your hatreds, your opinions. That is nirvana. And nirvana is, an, is in, in other words, when you, we, when in Elsa we speak of S, seeing the stopping of reactivity, we're actually saying seeing nirvana. Mm -hmm. seeing those nirvanic moments that open up maybe just for a brief second or two and, and then get taken over by something else. But the point of the third task is actually to see and to dwell in a non-reactive, i.e. a nirvanic perspective. Now, the other term you use, enlightenment, which is bodhi, awakening, I prefer really to enlightenment, is if is uh, encompasses all four tasks uh, again going back to the earliest discourse of the buddha um, he defines awakening quite explicitly as having uh, as, as having recognized sorry as having yeah having recognized performed and accomplished the four tasks that's awakening and if we think that of as a, as a process rather than the final state the process of embracing, letting go, seeing and acting, that is the process of waking up. Mm -hmm. We might one day get to a point where we're completely awake, um, but that I think is probably more of a useful ideal to head for rather than something we would you know, become attached to and think we should actually get there. Uh, it's asymptotic I think, in that sense. In other words, we need to think in those terms, but not to take that too literally. So awakening is the whole process um, of all four tasks. So again, sound early canonical basis for that. Nirvana is that sort of hinge. I, I sometimes think of nirvana as the hinge of awakening, the hinge of enlightenment. It's the, it's the letting, it's the seeing, it's the embracing, letting go, stopping, that's nirvana, and then responding. Yeah. So nirvana is, is, is the crux, mm -hmm. the hinge on which the process of awakening turns. Oh, I love that. I love the uh, nirvanic moments, you know, because yeah, we can nirvanic. we can all experience those throughout the day. And I think we all do. And then, and then we, we conceptualize it. And now we're looking for our concept and then we're not seeing it. And yet it's there all along. And, and I love with awakening as a, as a way of being rather than a destination, it's like then you realize the process is that you're always tr getting it, but you never get it. Um, That's right. <laughs> and the moment you think you, you get it, you didn't get it because the point was that you're getting it, not that you get it. Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, I love that. Okay, well, it's 1033 here. So uh, I know you've got your um, duties that you I have my kitchen on. duties now. Yeah. Right? As, a, as, a, as a secular Buddhist, I have to go now um, help prepare my evening meal for my wife and my mother-in-law. Okay. Well, I, again, I just want to say thank you. It's been so enjoyable to spend uh, this time talking to you um, on, on multiple perspectives because, you know, discussing this is, is, is a topic that I'm, I'm passionate about. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why I have the podcast and stuff, but also just as a fan and, and as someone who, who has deep gratitude for your work, for the effort that you've put into uh, presenting the ideas, the way that you've presented them has, I know, changed my life, which I know has directly affected uh, 
many, many lives for the better, to have more joy and more contentment and peace in life. And for that, I am extremely grateful to you. And I think it's really neat that I get to express that to you in, in person, someone, you know, someone who's uh, affected me in, in so many ways. And here I get to thank you is, uh, it's really neat, a neat moment for me. So thank you very much. Well, that's very kind of you, Noah. And it, it somehow makes my work worthwhile. I live a lot of my time fairly isolated in this village in France. Yeah. Uh, studying books and writing. <laughs> and so it means a lot to me. Uh, that uh, you found my work so valuable. It makes, gives me a real impetus to keep going. And likewise, those of you who are listening onto the podcast or who watch it when it's on a video, um, I really hope that these ideas are workable for you. Please don't get attached to them. They're just mm -hmm. tools that we can use. Uh, they're not doctrines that we need to uh, sort of hold on onto as though they're final revealed truths or anything like that. So thank you. Awesome. Thank, thank you. Great. That's Keep a wonderful closing. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm all twisted here with the microphone. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to end the live interview. Those of you who are watching live, thank you for joining us. Uh, be sure to click. There's a, an option to click to receive notifications anytime that the Secular Buddhism Facebook page is live. So click that if you want to catch uh, interviews like this. Thank you guys for joining us. Uh, you'll be able to watch this later as it's uploaded and then listen to it on the podcast. But this is it for the live portion. So thank you.